Jeff has asked that we mark number 313 tonight, and certainly we're happy to do that, and we'll use that at the appropriate time in the service this evening. It's our trust that each has enjoyed a good first day of the week. I know many continue to be sick, to have various and sundry health issues and problems, and we certainly trust and hope that each will, uh, who, who is in a circumstance like that will enjoy better days and health very, very soon. Among the many blessings, of course, that we each have to be considered in terms of thankfulness, some of them we'll actually consider in the course of the lesson tonight, in a lesson entitled, Received with Thanksgiving, taken from 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. In that text that Matt just read for us a few moments ago, some of the thoughts in it, in fact, we might begin to consider even at these opening stanza of our lesson. We each know the Thanksgiving holiday was just a few days ago. That day set aside on the calendar and specifically celebrated here in America and in a few other countries. And as we celebrate and give thought to this Thanksgiving holiday, a day on which there's often a bountifulness in a number of ways, many of us had the enjoyment perhaps on several occasions to sit at a rather abundantly filled table to enjoy friends, family, loved ones, and considered others in our lives as we enjoyed a feast with them. And there was almost always, additionally, a feeling of contentment, a feeling of abundance, a feeling of bounty, a feeling that all was reasonably well. Those kinds of thoughts and the blessings that come with them perhaps challenge us even tonight to consider that Thanksgiving is actually a rather frequent Bible topic. Now, the presentation is a bit different than this day we celebrate each year on the fourth Thursday in, in the month of November. But some of these thoughts at the bottom do emphasize the frequency of the thought of thanksgiving. In fact, 139 times in the King James Bible, both Old and New Testament, there is the word thank or some form of it, such as thankful, thanksgiving, thanksgivings, and many other words along that line. Given 139 occurrences, some of the passages are some of the most well-known in your consideration and mine in the Holy Scriptures. In 1 Chronicles 16.34, Dave, in the days of the ancient long ago, even there made the statement of how thankful he was able to be for the bounty of God's blessings toward him. Furthermore, in Psalm 26.7, again David uttered so proudly and lovingly the thought of thanksgiving offered unto God. In Psalm 50, verse 14, a commandment is given to each of us, Offer unto God thanksgiving. It is thus required that we give serious reflection and the thought of appropriate thanksgiving unto God. Our text tonight will shed some more light upon that topic as we reflect on it more thoroughly. In Luke 17, verses 11 and following, a passage that we shall consider a bit later in the lesson actually, but it's a very familiar one as Jesus spoke about the subject of thanksgiving. Finally, in Colossians 3.15, Paul, writing to the Colossians, again commanded them to always have a heart and mind of thanksgiving relative to God's blessings both temporally and spiritually. It is with those thoughts in mind prompting our consideration that we shall look more thoroughly into that passage in 1 Timothy 4. You might have noted in the reading that the word thanksgiving occurs there a couple of times. And in each of its instances, it is presented in a rather overwhelming fashion. Let's first note the context. As we do that, let's read. 
the first five verses of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter days, or latter times I should say, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Those first five verses of 1 Timothy 4 come in a context which really prompts us some serious reflection on exactly what it was that the inspired Apostle Paul was writing. For after all, this seems to have nothing to do with a Thanksgiving meal like you and I enjoy. But in a way, perhaps it does. Let's in fact note the context, if you would, with me. Paul begins the chapter writing, of course, to Timothy and affirming without any unclear, unclearness at all that, Timothy, there are coming days, times, that shall be dangerous and perilous. And furthermore, the Spirit speaketh expressly toward this end. Verse 1, some shall depart from the faith. Paul was here giving initial discussion about spiritual matters. Timothy, there will be those who shall depart from the faith. And these are some of the characteristics of those that make this departure. First, they shall give heed to seducing spirits. That is, spirits that are deceitful, spirits that are misleading, spirits that direct in the wrong fashion. Individuals will give heed unto them. And furthermore, doctrines of devils. What is proclaimed and taught, what is set forth as truth will not be truth at all. And yet individuals will give heed to this. They shall pursue it. They shall give it, in fact, their utmost attention. It does remind us, doesn't it, of what Paul told Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, when in verse 2 he said, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Paul forewarned Timothy that there would be a time when in his preaching individuals would not have the utmost interest in it. As you give thought to some of the matters that would be descriptive of that era and even eras that would follow it. He goes on to say in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 4, there would be those that would speak lies and hypocrisy. That is to say, they would be speaking untruth, but yet in hypocritical fashion they would present it as if it's truth, and others, of course, shall believe it and follow it. He goes on to say, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. It is possible then, isn't it, for us to be so overwhelmed with error that we have trained our conscience and disposition to where we accept that and as such our conscience can become numb to the error in which it is upholding. In that case of being seared, he goes on to list some more examples. Verse 3, forbidding to marry. Nextly, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. 
among the errors that Paul mentioned here to Timothy, he says, There will be some who will even assert that it's not good to marry, commanding in accents against it. Furthermore, when it comes to the reception of meat, they'll command to abstain from it. It is in that context, among these lists of falsehoods, among these lists of errors, that we find especially Paul's comment at the end of verse 3. <clears throat> which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. It seems appropriate then tonight to give some reflection to the thought of thanksgiving as Paul mentions it here. You'll notice that there were some in that day who asserted marriage is not good, you ought not marry for this or that other reason. And he said, furthermore, there will be those who would teach against the reception and eating of certain meats. Paul said again, God didn't say that. God, you'll notice in verse 3, has created all things to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. We will remember that in the Old Testament, there were circumstances, and in fact a large number of them, in which God did say to His people, Don't eat this. And in Leviticus chapters 11 and 12, there is a lengthy list of various animals, foods, which they were not allowed by God to eat. We're well familiar with swine, and we know that a Jew couldn't eat bacon, sausage, ham, or any of those things, which frankly in this area we kind of enjoy. But yet that was just a tiny portion of a lengthy list of foods which they were not allowed to eat. In the New Testament era, oh, how things have changed. We notice here, Paul says, though there are some who command to abstain from meats, Paul here says in the New Testament era, God has created all things to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. If you and I wish to enjoy sausage, ham, bacon, or other pork products, we have by God the liberty to appreciate the fact we may do that. So long as again we understand the statements of this passage that we're studying tonight. You'll notice furthermore, he says in verse number 4, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and with prayer. It is with those thoughts in mind as you come near the bottom of that slide. It is the case that Paul does expand in verses 4 and 5 more thoroughly on the nature of what we just studied in verse 3. Let's turn our attention to those two verses and see what does Paul say about thanksgiving and the role it must occupy in your life and in mine. First, let's begin with the phrases themselves and use them as the backbone of the remainder of the lesson. Verse 4 begins, For every creature of God is good. We're so familiar, aren't we, with those opening chapters in Genesis in which the God of heaven chronicled for us the creative activity. He fashioned the heaven and earth, and you'll notice on day number one, as He continued on those efforts, He fashioned light, and it was good. And on day number two, He fashioned the firmament, and it too was good. On day three, He gathered the waters together, the dry land appeared, and furthermore, plant life was fashioned and created by Him that day, and it too was good. On day number four, the celestial bodies that occupy the heavens were fashioned and made. 
the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they too were said to be good. On the fifth day, God fashioned the life that occupies the waters, the ocean life, if you please, as well as life in the heavens, such as birds. It too was expressly said to be good. Then came day six, land-dwelling animals and also mankind. As you come near the thought of the fact that day six also, the events thereof were said to be good, that does point out to us, doesn't it, that what God has fashioned and what God has made is in fact a good thing. But this seems to go even a little bit further than that. In Hebrews 11 verse 3, we notice that by faith we understand that the heavens were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. When God spoke those things into existence, He brought them into existence in an orderly fashion, in a precise way, and set in place the laws of science that you and I now recognize. And as such, it was maintained in a stance and in a position of goodness. But let's go even beyond that. Here it is significant that the Holy Spirit through Paul says, every creature of God is good. That helps us see that for the purpose for which God made it, with the characterization of His will respecting it, it has a good purpose and it has a good will. That helps us see that quite often man has sadly, tragically, terribly abused some of the things that God has fashioned and made. In fact, I would invite you to notice with me just a few examples. Though it is true that wood, by the way God made it, is a wonderful thing. Human beings can erect structures with it. We can build ornate facilities by which good things can take place inside. But that same wood can be used to make an idol. And that's not a good thing. When man employs and uses it for the purposes for which God placed it and set it forth, it has a marvelous character. And it's able to, in fact, bring about the goodness and bring glory to the God who fashioned and made it. But by that same token, man can use what God has made and use it in such a way that it does not glorify Him, but rather it detracts from His glory. And when that is true, what a shame it is. Every creature of God is good. You might notice that among those examples that challenge us so mightily with respect again to things even beyond wood, it is true also that certain plants and animals of the field again can be used in such a good way to benefit the human family when all the while there are instances in which man can use things to harm, to hurt, to damage, to injure, and again, when man chooses to take that approach, using the blessings of God in that way, what a sadness, what a tragedy it is. If we recognize it in this passage, Paul had just made a listing of things. There were those who said certain meats ought not be received. Paul says here clearly, every creature of God is good. If you and I choose to ingest pork products, we may in the Christian era do that. Every creature, Paul said, of God is good. But not only things like that, many of those other matters of the Old Testament that were forbidden to the Jews in that imperfect and antique mosaic era, those things have been nailed to the cross. And you and I are able to enjoy the blessed light of the beauty of the gospel 
2 Corinthians 4, 6. And as we enjoy that, we can now see that the statement goes a bit further. He says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused. This matter of nothing to be refused leads us to some of these comments. We notice again in the listing, Paul said, Even though God fashioned marriage, there were those the Holy Spirit said that someday are going to teach against it. And you and I know that there are those who for centuries have now taught against it, be it in the Catholic Church or otherwise. They absolutely require and assert that in order to occupy the highest positions of holy estate, those men must never marry. Despite the fact that God showered His blessings upon marriage when He fashioned it in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when He made the male and female, created He them, Genesis 1, 27, and we notice that in Genesis 2, closing two verses of that chapter, it was God and Adam who in speaking made statements that ring so beautifully in our ears like these. When God brought the woman Eve to the man Adam, it was, of course, first Adam who said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God, in reply, said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And with that, the marvelous wonder and beauty of marriage was instituted, and it had the blessing of God from that day forward for the scripturalness of it, for the power and prestige of it. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. That statement of Proverbs 18.22. You'll notice though, the Holy Spirit said some are going to say it's not a good thing. And with regard to meat, though here we notice in the Christian era, all meats can be received appropriately. Here he says there were some commanding to abstain from it. Aren't we blessed? to realize the great Christian era beneath which we live, one in which we can experience the fact that everything God has fashioned can be enjoyed as long as we enjoy it in the way that these verses indicate. As you give thought to what that means, this text again reads, Nothing to be refused. Those in that first century era that were then refusing what God has created to be received with thanksgiving, they were in error. And so too would we be today to use statements like that to refuse what God has fashioned, to refuse what He has ordained. There at the bottom, you'll notice again, the application of that principle in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 25, there had been meats offered to idols. The fear of that had caused some to reject and refuse that, and Paul used this same principle in that passage to help them see this idol is nothing at all in the world. And yet, if you understand that it offends your brother, abstain from it. But by its nature and by its character, it has not been defiled, and you may participate in it. Today, that is a powerful principle for us as we've discussed it in Romans 14 in recent Wednesday evenings. In fact, nothing to be refused leads us to that very last statement, the one that closes verse number 4. Here is a condition that is stated on top of all of this. Every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. How important 
is thanksgiving. We notice every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused, but then there's that condition, if it be received with thanksgiving. That, in fact, overwhelms all of this with the imperative need for a heart of thanksgiving. If you and I receive God's blessings and do so without thanksgiving, and do so without an attitude of gratitude and appreciation to God, we are sorely in error. Because we notice here it's good and not to be refused if we are able to receive it and take it in mind and make use of it with a heart that's filled with appreciation. We notice that listing in which Paul had mentioned spiritual matters like doctrines of devils and seducing spirits. But in that list he included things like, again, meats. The common foods that we enjoy day by day, do you and I receive them with thanksgiving? We do live in a world, do we not, in which it's so easy to take it for granted. We enjoy such a bounty, though there are other countries in which individuals find it hard to find anything except a little bowl of rice, maybe two to eat day by day. We've got a half dozen grocery stores within a five-minute drive of here probably, and all of them are filled with food. And we can enjoy it, make it available to ourselves, participate in it, are we thankful? Paul here did say, did he not, if it be received with thanksgiving. Here's some thoughts I would invite you to consider with me. The Bible, as we noted earlier, mentions thanksgiving on so many occasions. One of them that seems so interestingly to come before us is that text in Luke chapter 17. Beginning in verse number 10 and continuing for several verses in that chapter, a rather overwhelming and enthralling scene took place. There were ten lepers. They appeared before the Master. Jesus, being well aware of their state, nonetheless healed them. We will remember that, of course, leprosy was such a dreaded disease. And in fact, today still is. Jesus, however, healed them, and He did so with a great outpouring of gracefulness, mercy, and love. And yet, as He gave them the command to go and show themselves to the priest, because that was what was commanded of them in that day. That's what Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 required. As they went, they found themselves healed, but of that number, how many returned to express any kind of thanksgiving under the, under the Son of God? The text reads that only one of them did. The reason that's so telling is because the Lord asked a question. He, he noted Himself the following. He said, were there not ten cleansed? Where were the nine? You see, it was not an inappropriate thing at all for them to express appreciation and to express thanksgiving. Question for all of us, are we numbered amongst the nine or are we numbered amongst the one? Are we as thankful as we could be? Are we as thankful as we ought to be? Thanksgiving apparently is an imperative thing, and God looks favorably upon those who receive His blessings with thanksgiving. He has been so good to us. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. 2 Corinthians 9, 15. He sent the Son, the Son of God, who paid the price for all of our sins. Can we not express to Him a petition in thanksgiving? You'll notice with me here, he says, if it be received with thanksgiving. We're very good at receiving of God's gifts and blessings, aren't we? 
But this helps us see how needful it is for us to receive it with an element of thanksgiving. In Philippians 4, verse number 6, the inspired writer Paul on that occasion wrote these rather memorable words. He encourages us to receive and to do so ever with an attitude of thanksgiving, understanding that as we receive God's blessings in that way, there is a sense of contentment, there is a sense of appreciation, and there is a sense of rightness all the way about it. The character of that passage challenges us to notice one final section that's drawn from verse number 5 in this same chapter. So far, we've noted verse 4, which again reads, Every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. But now verse 5, For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That now points to us to a final set of considerations, the first of which is this one. God's blessings, as they have been listed and mentioned here, certainly are to be received with thanksgiving. But now he expresses why, for it is sanctified by the Word of God in prayer. The Word of God, of course, testifies to those statements that God has made. And hasn't He been so wonderful in that He has expressed in His Word what is and what can and what cannot be done? We have His laws. We have the proper statements about how we should receive things. You'll notice it says it's been sanctified by the Word of God. That word sanctified means to be purified. It means to be set apart. It means to be orchestrated and organized for the purpose for which God fashioned and made it. It's been sanctified by the Word of God. God has revealed in His Word how things are to be employed. When you and I use them with thanksgiving in that way, what a blessing it is and what sanctification it sets forth. But beyond that, we notice that is God's side to this. What is our side? It says, and prayer. We need to be thankful in our prayers. We perhaps are often very noted for asking things of God. We ask Him for good health. We ask Him that things may go well with our family. We ask Him for safety in our journeys. We ask Him for, in fact, things that may be good and right at work. We ask Him for blessings upon the church. But how often do we thank Him for many things, not the least of which answered prayers in days gone by? Once God answers prayer, are we thankful for the fact He did answer it and perhaps answered it more gloriously and bountifully than we even had prayed? Do we thank Him, in fact, for that good health that He has given us? Thankful, in fact, for the blessing of safety in our journey that is so often enjoyed. Do we thank Him for the other means, such as the bountiful table that we enjoyed perhaps just three days ago? All of that helps us see from a passage like this one. It is that attribute of prayer that has a part in the sanctification of the blessing. When we use God's blessings but don't thank Him for it, does this indicate that in fact we are using it unsanctified? We are using it unpurified? Perhaps in part, that's the Holy Spirit's point. We need to be very noted for our thanksgiving, don't we? thanking God for the bounty of His goodness, the greatness of His mercy, 
the power of all that He has done for us. For this text again says, For it is sanctified by the Word of God in prayer. Some of these words I would invite you to note with me as we look at these two examples. It's the example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. As Jesus was teaching His disciples to pray, He did in fact begin that prayer by urging them to give proper recognition and respect to the God of heaven, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then He draws attention in the prayer to the glory of God's presence and His working on earth when He said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Then he turns his attention to more physical matters like food when he says, Give us this day our daily bread. Even the Son of God on that occasion prayed so directly and yet so powerfully about each day's food being provided that day. He didn't pray in thanksgiving for a month's worth of food at once. He prayed that day in teaching for the character of that day's provision. Isn't it great that our God has promised to provide daily for those who love Him? Blessed be the God and Father of heaven who daily loadeth us with benefits, Psalm 68, 19. When the psalmist uttered a passage in a statement like that one, doesn't it take us to the example of even Paul in Acts 27, verse 35? On that occasion, we find Paul and many others in dire straits because they were in the midst of a ship and the storm was raging about them. This was on Paul's voyage to Rome. And we will remember that shipwreck took place later as they warred and as they attempted to make it safely to land day after day. However, they did not make it safely, if you please, in terms of the ship because they lost the ship. But we do remember that Paul eventually reached the point when he set food before them and he gave thanks. Here they were in the midst of a raging storm and yet Paul still paused to thank God for the food. Perhaps you and I should recognize how notable, how appropriate it is to express thanksgiving unto God for His blessings, be it those of our health, those of our food, those of the other things He has given us. These two verses again close by noting, For it is sanctified. That word it has reference to God's blessings, His creatures, if you please, from verse number 4, by the word of God in prayer. Don't we serve a loving God and a God who has been so good to us? It reminds us, I suppose, of the closing two chapters of the book of Malachi. In fact, the last two chapters of the Old Testament. For in that book, again, Malachi raised a very pertinent question. He said, will a man rob God? They were quick to retort, no, a man won't rob God and we haven't robbed you. But God says, you have robbed me. They had the nerve to ask God, how have we robbed you? And God was quick to say, because you have withheld from me the proper attitude and the proper dedication of the things I have given to you. God had been so good to them, but they refused to acknowledge the source from whom the things could come. That reminds me, and perhaps it does all of us, of one of the noble reasons as to why the Gentiles as a nation had lapsed so far from where they ought to have been. That's found in Romans 1, verses 21 and 22. On that occasion, he says, Neither were they thankful. 
neither were they thankful. One of the reasons why the Gentiles as a nation had dipped to the point they had was because they had ceased to be thankful. May we not be guilty of that kind of error. But not just on the fourth Thursday in November of each year, but yea, each and every day, may our heart overpour with thanksgiving unto our great God who has been so gracious, so bountiful, and so merciful to each of us. To those of us who are Christians, we would never be able by words to thank God enough that He has given us the gospel. And we in love have obeyed it because in that obedience our sins have been cleansed and we stand justified and sanctified before Him, ready in fact to meet Him at the occasion of that day of judgment because we've again been washed by the blood of His Son. This very night, if you're not a faithful New Testament Christian, perhaps it in part has been described by the fact you no longer are thankful. You no longer are one who has an attitude of thanksgiving day by day, but rather you've begun to think that by your own hands you have done it, or by your own efforts and labors you have brought things about. And you fail to realize that the blessings from whom all things have come are the ones that you have ignored. Tonight, if we may assist you in your response to the gospel, if you have never obeyed the gospel initially, why not tonight? Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His matchless name as the Son of God, and be baptized. If you've done that, but you no longer are faithful, why not come back to your first love tonight? That prodigal son looked a gift horse in the mouth as well, didn't he? When he left home with all that he had, wasted it in riotous living. But Dad was waiting for him to come back home. He put the robe on him, put the ring on his finger, killed the fatted calf. My son that was dead is now alive. If tonight you're lost in sin, you too are spiritually dead. Why not come back home? Why not come back to life? God can in fact do that as He forgives your sins and lets you again walk faithfully by His side. If we can assist you tonight by praying with you, by praying on your behalf, we'd be honored to do that. We would only urge you to acknowledge your sin, repent of it, and confess it is appropriate. And if we could be of assistance to you tonight, let us all remember that we should not refuse anything that God has fashioned for the purpose He made it, but to receive it with thanksgiving, because it's been sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer. And if we can help you tonight in your response to the gospel, won't you let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.